0: Hello Cape Cod and Beyond. My first guest is back again with us talking about wampum, their significance, their symbolism. Lee Roscoe is a journalist, an author, a playwright, filmmaker, and woman of many hats. Welcome, Lee. You wrote wampum art for the ages during the pandemic and during the commemoration of the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing when a very special wampum belt was created by members of the Wampanoag tribe.
1: We're going to talk about wampum today. and One of the important pieces of the commemoration of the 400th was a ceremonial belt that was created of Wampum, and I'll talk a little later about what Wampum is and its historical significance, but it's a really interesting story, and I want to, again, inform your listeners, I am not Wampanoag. I have been privileged with information from tribal members, and some of what I'm about to say is quite public. During King Philip's War, as many of you probably know, uh, the alliance between the separatists the Plymouth Colony and Usamequin, the Massasoit or, or leader, was pretty good for many years. And then, as the Massachusetts Bay Colony started to populate Massachusetts, more and more land was usurped and more and more conflict happened. And finally, Usamequin's sons, Medicom and Wamsuda, wanted to do something about it to claim their heritage. And it was really patriotism that drove them and a little bit of desperation. So King Philip's War was prosecuted in around 1675 to 76. It's alleged to be one of the bloodiest wars ever. And that really means bloodiest for Indian casualties. Because what happened was that finally, when the Wampanoag were defeated, Philip's family was sold into slavery um, his brother had already been, Menekom's brother, Wamsuda, Wamsuda, had already been perhaps poisoned, nobody knows for sure, but been died mysteriously during some diplomatic relations. Philip's kin were sold into slavery, and he was beheaded, this is so horrible, drawn and quartered, and his head was put on a pike in Plymouth and displayed for years, so along with that, his wampum belt which was alleged to be nine feet long and going down to his ankles was probably captain benjamin church gave it to another man who then may have brought it to england or may not have it disappeared and this belt was extremely significant because it represented philip's status his clan It was filled with symbols, and we'll talk a little bit more about wampum. They are sacred texts. The wampum belts were a kind of a sacred text. So that belt disappeared, and Paula Peters and her son Stephen Peters decided that they would recreate, they would create a new belt. And there was consensus in the tribe to do this. They created a new belt to honor Philip. And to call back the belt because for them, the wampum beads are alive. They have spirit. And they can actually perhaps speak to Philip's belt and call it back. Paula Peters has done many, many interviews, and you can find more about this by Googling or by looking at the book. Um and the belt is absolutely powerful, it's moving. Um it was Discuss some of the symbols on it were created from discussion, some were revealed in dream and vision, I believe. And there's a lot of symbolism in it. There's a central tree, which is the tree from which the people derived. There are common pots to either side, which are supposed to symbolize water and earth and sustenance. There is herring, which is a cycle of life. There are clan symbols one of which, for instance, uh, there, there, there are creatures such as the wolf who, Paul says, protects the tribe, the bear, which gives strength, the deer, which gives grace, and, and so forth. Um, so if you have a chance to see it, the belt was just at the Cahoon Museum, uh, I don't know where it's going next, see it. Can you talk about the many uses of wampum? It is beads that are created from whelks, in the column inside the well, and from cohogs, in both white and purple, in particular, wampum peak or peak literally means white bead, and they're the darker purples that they got to create beads from. They were muihaki, and sukihoak, and one of my major informants is Elizabeth James Perry, and she talks a great deal about crafting traditional wampum artifacts. Um, I also, I wanna say that the identities of Algonquian and Iroquoian people are very much linked with wampum. It was in the Northeast that um, it was most used. We'll get into a little bit about the dispersal of it. They have been creating these wampum beads For thousands of years, some sources say. Um, Some sources say that the Algonquians were the originators, and those are the tribes that the Wampanoag are part of. They're from the southeast north into into Canada. Uh, Some people say that the Iroquois were the first, but it's very likely that it was our coastal people because the Iroquois are inland and they would have had to have traded for uh, wampum. and probably did so with the Narragansetts, the Wampanoag, and the peoples of Long Island. So um, Elizabeth James Perry, I-, I love to quote her, the significance of wampum, if there are so many uses for it, it's both sacred and secular. So I'm, we're aware of the, the secular uses for adornment. I'm wearing some wampum earrings crafted by Anna Juan Whedon. But what people don't realize is how significant spiritually uh, wampum was. It was used in ceremony. It was used as medicine. There were strands that you could wear and still people do wear around their neck and sometimes ceremonially on their ears, which would clean the throat, which would clear the ears. Ceremonies of condolence wampum would be given and it would clear the eyes of tears So I keep saying Elizabeth, and I haven't yet quoted her. She talks about wampum being so significant to her people because ocean water is the origin of life. And it's so important to coastal and island people because it defines us. I'm quoting her. We draw sustenance from a a lot of... Uh, the year, whether it's lobster, clams, or oysters. And oh, and I love to say that Anawan always says that the clam is our buffalo and wampum is our turquoise. <laughs> I love that. Um, so she says that wampum is very much of the sea, tooled as it is from the quahogs and whelks, which also gave much love food to the people. The connection to water as medicine confers great spiritual power to Wampum and has a lot to do with acknowledging the connection between sea and sky. It has the gorgeous duality of purple and white. And that duality, she says, and and this is throughout my book and throughout Indigenous belief throughout Turtle Island, um, that duality is not the judgmental good and evil of of Judeo-Christianity. It's more uh, a balance between different forces of of existence. It's not judgmental. So she says that the combination of white and purple represents that duality, with the dark often more serious. It might be more s- sadness, hardship, tougher times, and the lighter wampum more purity, more innocence. And that children were more likely to wear. Uh, the whiter wampum. She also says that in her culture, creation of wampum ceremonially links to observances and celebrations around the year that have to do with the constellations. And there is secrecy around that. I have not been told certain things because certain things have to be kept secret to maintain their power. But if you switch for a minute and look at the, the um, wampum belts that were created by the Iroquoian people, their significance is just incredible. They, there are wampum belt keepers in all of these tribes, but the original Iroquoian belt was alleged to have been, if not created, uh, suggested by the peacemaker, Degonawita. De and it is filled with symbolism. It has the tree of peace. It has the five nations council fires. One of the important things about wampum, the sacred ceremonial aspects of it is its use, as, a, as I mentioned, as a sacred text. It's mnemonic. It's a memory device. So when you talk about the tribes of the Northeast or other indigenous people being not literate or pre-literate, I I take issue with that because these bells, as with some of the birch bark inscriptions for the Midiwiwi society further North, amongst the Anishinaabe had a kind of text on them, a reminder of text so that they could be read. And as one writer researcher says, them helped to convey the weight of words. The belts could be used for alliances. They could cement peace. If they had red on them, it could mean war. If they had white borders around them, they say it could mean peace. They could be used as marriage gifts. They could be used for creating medicine. There were so many different uses of them, as I understand it. And there are some really, really good sources, some of the ancient... <laughs> 19th century anthropologist, one of them, Frank Speck, wrote a really wonderful monograph uh, about wampum and where it came from and some of the mythology around it. He he says that some of the tribes of the East Coast say that it was originally shaken out of the feathers of a bird, <laughs> a sacred bird. It's so beautiful. <laughs> but I did forget to mention with the Iroquois, those belts have prophecies on them. And I just started to learn about that. But uh, one of the prophecies apparently has to do with synthesis between what you were saying, kind of, you know, the old and the new different peoples coming together can be interpreted as a a fusion in order to go on to the future, as I understand it. And, And I could be wrong, but that's my take on it.
0: I wanted to ask you about how wampum became more currency.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting story. Originally, there was a guy named Isaac de Razier who is alleged to be the first person to suggest using wampum as currency. He came to Plymouth Colony in 1627, and in 1628 wrote a letter back to the Dutch talking about how this could be used for business. And that's kind of when it came came into being. And again, I'm just going to read my notes because there's some really interesting... Oh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how it's how it's made. Um, if you want to find out, there's a really good example of how wampum was created in Keith Wilbur's old book, The New England Indians, because this pertains to how it became currency. The originally... They would use a reed drill or a stone drill with water and sand. Can you imagine how long, how intricate, to create the beads? After the whites came, they were able to use nails in their bow drills to drill holes. And after Isaac de Razier and the Dutch decided that this would be a really good currency, it, it it bastardized the sacred use and and tribes people still thought of it as gift giving as reciprocal not as a kind of hard commercial trade transaction it it took a long time and and it's possible that native people never really went that route but it did become currency between um colonists with amongst the french and amongst the english There's a really good monograph online, Money Substitutes in New Netherland and the early New York. And this is right to the point. Long Island Indians created large quantities of wampum that the Dutch called the uh, the Long Island. They called it Siwan Haki. And that's the place of Siwan. And and so they would call wampum Siwan. It became that for money. And the British also used that area and got beads from there for trade, for the fur trade. And John Winthrop, who was kind of a, the bad guy of the Massachusetts colony, thought that Long Island was the best location from which Massachusetts Bay would be able to acquire wampum. And it became a manufactory. There was a guy named John Campbell in New Jersey who created wampum, I think, up until fairly recently. And This is so interesting. In 1648, Winthrop Jr. acquired 1,000 wampum drills and 12,000 pins to drill with from a guy named Alexander Bryant and this supplied currency for the fur trade along the Connecticut River. You had asked me, Pandora, how far and wide it spread. So originally, it was the the Woodland Indians of the Northeast, as I mentioned, the Iroquoian and Algonquian peoples. But once it it became currency in the hands of the intruders, they used it for trade. And the traders brought it all the way to the Plains Indians. The French and the Brits brought it to the Winnebago, the Sac and Fox, and the Iowa as well as the Sioux. But for the Sioux, it didn't have the Lakota people, it really didn't have the meaning, allegedly, that it might have had for other Western tribes, except for ornamentation, because it was a glorious way of of showing a little bit of status for the Lakota. People came in, they invaded, and they took what was not theirs instead of, as Anawan often says, learning from the Native people, and there could have been a synthesis. There could have been a much better life way if both cultures had taken the best from each other. And that's the hope that maybe we'll learn to do that, because we need a combination of the ancient ways. They adapted. Native people took the best from what was coming in uh, to use. They didn't reject it. So it would it it we could have avoided so much tragedy had, had there been this synthesis uh, between the two cultures, a balance, you know. But the settlement at Plymouth and, and and certainly in Massachusetts set the trajectory for the history of this country in a bad way. Would have been better if people had been more like Roger Williams in Rhode Island who were admiring of and acceptant of and learned from the native people. You know, it was a much more holistic and, and actually you know, much more sophisticated way of dealing with life because there was reciprocity between human beings and the natural world and the universe and everything is alive and therefore everything needs to be respected. There wasn't a dead world and an alive world. Um, there it, it's It was much subtler that I can see than the Eurocentric world, which we have inherited. And that's one of the reasons I'm so drawn to things indigenous because my own worldview before I knew that that was there was very much like that. So, oh my goodness. These are people who you know, we think a lot, yeah. you know, that long, that thousands and thousands of, of years of genetic, adaptation to uh, the natural world where you either lived with it in the right way or it would destroy you. And how that's how people like the Wampanoag have survived for 12,000 years. And we come along and we rip it all to shreds. Uh, I mean, I have that in Dreams from a Planet in Peril. One of the characters said, these civilized who savage us call these medicinal plants weeds that we used, you know, for centuries. It's it's interesting, Frank Speck on his monograph in Wampum, he he says the white man has subordinated the plants, animals and elements to his drive for economic security. Whereas the Indian shares his universe with the forces of nature. So some people see it, some people saw it. He was seeing it in the 19th century. I mean but I mean if you're Wampanoag, they were just as bad because they took your land and they were on and they were on your turf and they you know I mean, there was, and, use of, there was there, a
0: lot of uh, intentional uh, obfuscation about what there There was there were cultural misunderstandings, but there were also like, oh, these these fools traded this great piece of land for this stuff. And it's like, well, probably under pressure. And,
1: and well, that's right. And also it was used a lot of the misunderstanding yeah. was, OK, I'm going to let you want to yeah. use this land. That's fine. So you've given me a kettle and a bear skin. I didn't realize you wanted to take it, take it over. I thought you wanted to use it because there were two different types of land use, settled agriculture versus versus semi-nomadic horticulturalists by the time that the Pilgrims got here. Yeah, and there there was getting people drunk. There were laws that were created that were Kafkaesque that you couldn't escape from. Natives were sold into slavery. Natives were indentured. Uh, um, There was trickery. There was thievery. There was shame, for instance. I mean, yeah, John Elliott and the praying Indians. The praying Indians helped to, in a way, to protect some of our local natives. But on the other hand, took away their rights. They put them into guardianships, which could be very oppressive. And Christianity, uh, you read some of the confessionals uh, that when they were trying to convert the Indians here in Massachusetts and even on the Cape, but particularly in other parts of Massachusetts, trying to convert them to, to Christianity, they made them do these confessionals. And they're just excruciating, you know, horrible, trying to fill people who were without sin and without shame with shame and sin. To try to convert them there is hope and i think some of the prophecies say that that there will be a coming together and a balance and people will find the the right way
0: thank you lee roscoe for speaking with us about wampum and your new book wampanoag art for the ages traditional and transitional That was Yusuf Nassif with Time Travel. My second guest is Rebecca Burrell, expert movement, sound instructor who will be teaching an immersive seven day workshop at Findhorn in Scotland, June 10th through 17th. The workshop Languages of Nature Languages of Art is an opportunity to reconnect with nature and what Rebecca describes as our primary language. Her workshop incorporates movement, sound, poetry, and art making. Welcome, Rebecca. First off, tell us a little bit about Fintorn.
2: Well, I learned about Fintorn way back in the early 1970s when I was walking around the, um, the library um, shelves at Dartmouth College. I was visiting my sister there and I came across this book, something about the magic of Fintorn, And it was all about this re- reality where these people who are out of work went and stayed at this, um, they were in unemployment, as these three people who've been running a hotel and they got laid off um, nearby Fenthorn. So they went to live in a trailer park in, on the sand dunes and they were, and but all three of these people had a long time had a med- deep meditation connection with guides, inner guides. Um, and they were instructed to build garden, make build gardens there in the sand, these sand dunes. So, it was a combination of learning about what to do about that because I knew absolutely nothing about gardening. And they, as well as breaking through with one of the one of the guides, one of the meditators, guides broke through to communicate with what's called the nature divas, and the nature divas are the the form-taking patterns and intelligence of a plant. All plants have a specific diva and it's very, you know, you can think in terms of the geometry of unfoldment, but a pattern of unfoldment as well, and then form, form all has intelligence at the notion that all intelligence, you know, has form in form, all form has intelligence. In other words, the tel- intelligence of nature, the intelligence of creation. It's not just about humans are the only ones around here who have intelligence, and so um, they communicated with these divas to get guidance. And by you know, not within within less than ten years, these gardens had become famous worldwide, famous because of these extraordinary things that they were growing there in this place, and so. Since the late 70s, they became the Fintwine Foundation, and they have been a educational, what they call educational charity, which is the same thing as saying a nonprofit here in the United States, an educational charity ever since. Teaching about human relationship with nature, higher consciousness of who we are as human beings on the planet, and what our fundamental belonging, where our fundamental belonging is, is with a kinship and reciprocal relationship with nature, learning from nature. That was way back, way back in the early, early um, 60s and 70s that this was all taking form. And lots and lots of hippies came from the United States over there to, to stay, attracting people from all over the world to stay for periods of time to learn and participate in these garden gardenings and the higher and participating in higher consciousness coming to understand uh you know our relationship with the world as more of a spiritual relationship rather than just this materialistic consumerist progress and development and profiteering and that whole very destructive essentially And and was understood back then that was a destructive way to be going about being in the world so that was part of their teachings to explore and learn other ways of being in the world that um, was were was co-creative with nature and with other humans and rather than com- competitive and destructive. And so now how does this figure in for me? Um, <clears throat> I was enchanted with Svint way back then and um, was so delighted to have a sort of a, uh, reinforcement to what my childhood' sense of nature was about was full of these mysterious intelligences and presences and qualities of being and and which is what it 's about i mean it 's about the um, communications that Dorothy had with the divas were, weren 't in words they were in qualities senses of qualities, and so that 's not the typical sort of decoding of communication that we know about. But what I came to understand when studying dance, I, I always grew up dancing, but I had a neuromuscular issue and I had learning disabilities. But it all came down to when I went to get a quickie dance degree. So they would pay me at my local high school for teaching there because I was volunteering. They said I needed a degree to get paid back in the early 70s. So I went off to get a you know a quickie degree and ended up getting a doctorate in the study around What I call movement-based child development. So I took what I, I combined movement and learning disabilities and dance all together, and followed a pathway that showed me that well, this fundamental sense of quality as communication and meaning was primary language that we that gets patterned in utero. Movement and sound are first perceived as one thing, which makes sense because all movement makes sound and all sound is movement. So that our, our immediate relationship with it in, in utero environment was all sound and movement.
0: That was part one of my interview with movement sound instructor Rebecca Burrow. Part two will air next week. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also, check out Healing Wisdom Radio Show.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. music is provided by mazen you can find her website at masonmusic.com. that's m-a-e-s-y-n